Welcome to Proceeding Horizons, a podcast for exploring topics in astronomy and space science. Since antiquity, humans have gazed at the night sky, attempting to decipher its mysteries and find our place within it. As astronomer Edwin Hubble once remarked, the history of astronomy is a history of receding horizons. Our podcast will attempt to answer some of the biggest questions from the oldest of sciences. The mission of this podcast is to explore topics of astronomy and space exploration and share them with the community of Brownsville, Texas. Our valley is entering into the next phase of human space exploration and participating in the era of multi-messenger astronomy. We are providing a forum of discussion among people of all ages and expertise to bring awareness about our role in this next exciting era. These are Receding Horizons. Somewhere in the universe, two black holes collide. As heavy as stars, as small as cities, literally black holes. Tethered by gravity in their final seconds together, the black holes course through thousands of revolutions about their eventual point of contact, churning up space and time until they crash and merge into one bigger black hole, an event more powerful than any since the origin of the universe, outputting more than a trillion times the power of a billion suns. The black holes collide in complete darkness. None of the energy exploding from the collision comes out as light. No telescope will ever see the event. That perfusion of energy emanates from the coalescing holes in a purely gravitational form, as waves in the shape of space-time, as gravitational waves. An astronaut floating nearby would see nothing, but the space she occupied would ring, deforming her, squeezing, then stretching. If close enough, her auditory mechanism could vibrate in response. She would hear the wave. In empty darkness, she could hear space-time ring, barring death by a black hole. Gravitational waves are like sounds without a material medium. When black holes collide, they make a sound. That was uh, chapter one, When Black Holes Collide, from Jana Levin's 2016 book, Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space. This is Receding Horizons, episode two with your co-hosts, Victor De Los Santos and myself, Richard Camuccio. And today we're gonna be talking about gravitational waves with our good friend, Brina Martinez. Brina Martinez is- (laughs) And black holes, especially black holes, which are the coolest things I think in the universe. Brina Martinez is an undergraduate studying physics and computer science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. She is currently a research assistant at the Center for Gravitational Wave Astronomy and in the Time Domain Astronomy Group operating the Cristina Torres Memorial Observatory, both under the mentorship of Dr. Mario Diaz. Brina is a published scientist. Her research focuses on characterizing noise sources intrinsic to the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. She has participated in a research experience for undergraduates at Louisiana State University under Dr. Guillermo Valdez and Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez and was a LIGO undergraduate fellow at Caltech under Dr. Derek Davis. Brina is a board member and resident astrophysicist at the South Texas Astronomical Society, as well as a board board member and secretary at the Brownsville chapter of the Society of Physics Students. She was the recipient of several awards, including the scholarship from the Society for Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science, 
and a Victor M. Blanco Fellowship from the LIGO Lab and National Society of Hispanic Physicists. She's a gifted public speaker, and I've had the privilege to work with her and make a lot of memories during my time in Brownsville. Brina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> we can have a whole episode just on her credential. <laughs> I was about to say, I, I need to go into some of that at some point and ask, uh, well, especially about your uh, uh, work at LIGO. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that was definitely, uh, I needed, it was all needed to be said because uh, from my time in, in, in Brownsville, I, I have to say getting to know Brina and working with her, uh, she's been a big inspiration, inspiration to me. Um, right before we started this podcast, she was telling us about her daily schedule and I'm like, I thought I was busy, but. <laughs> she just told us about the meetings. There's still all the work that has to go in for right. all of that. <laughs> yeah just for everyone her, she said her future her 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 um her free time is after midnight so so Brina um how did you how, I want to I want to just start where I start usually with with everybody on the show which is how did you get how did you get to where you are right now how did you get to do all of that stuff I just read um and work at LIGO and at Louisiana State University and work with a professor at Caltech how did you get into physics? What sparked your inspiration? Um, yeah, so I actually talked about this with Victor like a few days ago for another video. But, um, you know, I told him like I didn't actually think I would be a scientist growing up. It was funny because like, so sophomore year in high school, I was taking chemistry and I, I like, I was good at it. Like I'm good at science and I'm good at math, but I absolutely hated it. I hated like doing the work. <laughs> um, and my teacher was like, oh, why don't you become a physicist? Like very like ironically, like she's like, you should become a physicist. Like, I think you'd be really good at that. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't even know what physics is. And then junior year comes and we have to take physics as a junior in high school. And I'm sorry. And um, I had this amazing teacher. She was uh, like a female teacher that I had for physics. There was other teachers, but she was the only female teacher. And she actually worked, did work with NASA. I found out later on when I took her. And that class was so fun. It was the first class that wasn't boring for me. You know, most classes were pretty boring because you know the material was kind of easier. Like it wasn't interesting for me. And that one was so amazing because you get these equations and these formulas and you see like how they beautifully interact to create these solutions or tell you how things work and why things work. So that was kind of the start of like, oh, maybe I should become a physicist and pursue this. And then towards the end of the course, we covered a bit of black holes and that was it. Like I went home that day and did research, like the first time in my life did research on my laptop and looked so much so many things up and uh since then I went to college and studied physics and ended up doing computer science also but that was later on and around my sophomore year again in college I ended up meeting uh, a fellow colleague Wendy Mendoza and uh, Moises Castillo yes, right <laughs> and um they invited me to a seminar for the time domain astronomy group and Wendy was doing a presentation on asteroids and I was like man this is really cool you know I never studied astronomy before I'm like oh this is kind of what we talked about in high school but I didn't really get to dive too deep into it and I asked uh, Dr. Diaz if I could join the group 
and he was kind enough to say yes like come to the next meeting so you can kind of get a feel of what we were about and I ended up joining the group around October of 2018 and I met Richard and a few other people uh, they were really nice to me and since then I did like volunteer work at a CTMO and then the January following that year, I attended a conference for undergraduate women in physics, and I met Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez uh, after Dr. Diaz told me to go say hi to an ex-student of his, and I was like, okay, I'll say hi to this student. I don't know who she is, but I guess, and then at the meeting, I saw her shirt, and it said LIGO, and I was like, what is LIGO? Like, I don't know what this is, and then she ended up giving a presentation, and I, again, my mind was blown. So then that, I remember exactly uh, after her presentation, I texted Richard and asked for a bunch of materials on interferometers. And I guess that's where I started. And then a few weeks later, I talked to Dr. Diaz about my experience at the conference. And he told me, okay, do you want to go to Louisiana State University and do research? Out of the blue. And I was like, yeah. sure, let's, let's do this. Um, so I went that following summer and then after that, I applied for other internships and managed to land a position at Caltech the following year and worked with them. And then it's just been nonstop since then. I started working with STARS and then um, doing other outreach activities uh, on top of research and studies. And now, this coming May, I'll be graduating with my bachelor's. That's an amazing story. Um, I wanted to ask, like, what do you think, uh, I guess, junior high school Brina would say if you went back and said, oh, you're going to be working on an instrument that's looking for black holes. I mean, talk with about a laser. It, with a laser. <laughs> um, I probably wouldn't be, like believe it because I still don't believe it. Like, who, who gave me this opportunity? Like, why would they give it to me? Um, I probably like I'm like the worst person to give it to like I could break an instrument like in 20 seconds but they they trusted me <laughs> enough they trusted you enough and you you also now you're a published scientist and you, so you've you've gone that you've t you've taken this amazing journey only in these last few years and you're just getting warmed up that's the that's that's what's been so inspiring to me like I was I was in Brownsville for just under four years and in that time I've seen so much growth uh in your journey like it's it's incredible so and i remember when you asked me for those notes i think did i send you did i send did i give you uh the notes from lesouche did, did i ever give you those or i forget what i, I actually yeah you gave me some handwritten notes from when you went to school over yeah. there and um i forgot where it was but it was lesouche france yeah 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 yeah. Okay. yeah you gave me some of those and i still have those scanned like in my iPad, and then you also sent me the courses on YouTube. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Like, they were recorded, so like I had watched those. And then after that, Dr. Diaz also gave me a book on the fundamentals of like interferometer gravitational wave uh, detectors, and I still have his book. I need to return it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that book's by uh, Peter Solson, right? Or is that yeah. a different? Okay, that's, that's yeah. a different book. It was, it was kind of crazy because. So I worked with uh, Dr. Derek Davis at Caltech uh, this past year in 2020, and his uh, mentor for, uh, I can't, I think it was, I can't remember if he was undergrad or graduate, but it was actually Peter Selson. That's amazing. So like, it all connected, and I was like, wow. 
I, I have to say, just because we're talking about that, like I when I was when I was in France, I was sitting next to Peter Salson. I didn't know who that was at the time. And then it was like the next lecture was being given by Peter Salson and he stands up and he walks down. I was like, whoa, okay, I was just sitting next to him. <laughs> so that's um Yeah, that's, that's something that's so cool to me, just how accessible these scientists are. I, I haven't yeah. experienced it, I mean, too much, but but even then I um Brina, I didn't know that that it was that you had joined the group in October 2018. That was only a, a few months before uh, before I I also kind of joined the group and, and started showing yeah. up the seminars. So I, was it the, that same lecture that did uh, Dr. Gonzalez go a, a few times, or because I was there in that room in the the, the old building um, where she did that presentation? Was that the same one, or, or did she go a couple times that? here i would say it's the same one because i remember it was before i left to livingston because you had walked in to dr diaz's office richard was there maki was there i think tanya our friend tanya was there and uh carol was there and you brought up ligo in your conversation and i think doc i don't know who it was said oh yeah she's going to ligo like this summer like we were all there and i remember i remember, it, but... I, 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 remember I remember this too because that that same lecture i think it's the same one it's uh, recorded on youtube on the ctmo page so like that lecture's there so everybody who's listening that that lecture is like a lot of historical stuff in our group happened on that day in that moment and yeah, it's not a coincidence amazing. it's not a coincidence that gabriella gonzalez was in the room too because she's a super inspirational so that, that's amazing because I knew that story about you, but I, for some reason, until when you said that date was when I put that together, I didn't know that it was lined up that much. Wow. You did all that just in that, the same time that we kind of started with stars. That's, that's almost like, bad. damn, what have I done? <laughs> I, don't, I say the same thing. I mean, like, <laughs> I'd see uh, Brina studying with uh, Tanya and Victor in the, in the conference room in, in Calvary. So this is on the old the old physics building in uh, Brownsville campus, and uh, yeah, like I just remember seeing down the hall. You guys were always in there studying and, and working on your problems together, suffering together. You know, misery loves company. So yeah, that was like Cal- my second home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Calvary days. That's awesome. <laughs> the Calvary days. Like, yeah. Oh, I miss I miss that building. But um, so um. Okay, so here's an important question because we've mentioned this a few times. I mentioned it in your bio and you mentioned it a bunch of times too. What is LIGO? Um, what, what is it? What is it? I mean, what does it stand for? What does it do? And maybe for people who would, wouldn't even know what gravitational waves are, what is LIGO? Right. Uh, so LIGO, like you mentioned, stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Uh, it's a large scale project aiming to detect gravitational waves. Um, So gravitational waves are, I guess, like the bending or warping of space and time itself. So you have these massive massive objects in space, such as black holes, like you mentioned. Um, And you can kind of think of them as like sitting next to each other or almost coming in contact with each other and their weights are are massive enough to bend this three-dimensional grid in space. So like, an example would be, I don't know if you've ever stood in a pool with like another person and each of you start jumping at opposite ends and these waves start coming in contact with each other from your, from your masses. So that's kind of the same idea happening there. Um, so what LIGO wants to, well, what it has done 
is pick up those signals. And though they're really far away, LIGO is sensitive enough to pick them up. So there's two de- there's two detectors in America. Um, one is in LIGO Livingston, Livingston, Louisiana, and one is in Hanford, Washington. And uh, they work together to pick up these signals because you can't pick up a signal with just one detector. Um, you'd have to have some sort of um, reassurance that you've picked up a signal. So having more than one detector creates a network to check up on whether it is a signal or not. And then there's other ones in uh, Virgo and they're creating another one in Japan called Kagra. And then they're also doing a LIGO India site. So there's a bunch of these detectors popping up all over the US to create a very large array of uh, sensitivity. I and guess. so like for the array, I'm, I'm, uh, from my understanding, the more the better in the sense that the more detectors you have, the more uh, reassurance, as you said, uh, for confidence in a detection and also uh, maybe coverage of the sky too, right? So I would assume more right. than more is better, yeah. Great. Can you explain uh, a little bit about how, how it works? How LIGO actually works and I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, go. <laughs> um, so the ones here uh, in Livingston and Hanford are based off a basic Michelson interferometer. So you have the uh, a laser shoot down a, a tunnel, I guess, and be split into two ways from by a mirror. Um, and there's these other mirrors at the ends of the arm length. So LIGO's arm is about four kilometers each. I think, and it's shaped in an L. Um, So when the laser is reflected back off of the end mirrors, you would see if there was no uh, warping of the light or arms, um, you would have those, um, the laser um, pattern merge back normally. But if there was a sort of a differential in the arm length, which is uh, what LIGO looks for, uh, you would see the signal come back in a photo detector so yeah if you're if you're measuring like like essentially vibrations of a mirror and this is i know i know from your background and your research this is very pertinent to what you have done and what you're doing right now but i'm assuming a lot of different things can shape the mirror and that's why that's one of the reasons why you need multiple detectors that are separated at very their conditions are isolated so if you have a true signal and maybe somebody was chopping down trees near Livingston, you know that you could rule that out, right? Right, right. So um, LIGO does a lot of what are called data quality checks. Uh, I don't know if it's fine if I jump into this already. You could do whatever you want on this show. Is <laughs> Anything yeah. is possible. There are no rules. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in each of the LIGO detectors, there are a bunch of sensors. So there's uh, microphones, seismometers, um, you can name it, anything to pick up different signals of motion or sound that could be around the detector. Um, because gravitational waves are so small by the time they reach us, we wanna be as sensitive as we could um, against other noise and only to a uh, gravitational wave. So they have these channels and what they do, use them for is to make sure, um, so they look for physical coupling 
in those channels and if there is like a, a noise from like you mentioned a, a tree falling or a plane uh, they'll highlight it and say you know we don't want to look here this channel is not good at looking for gravitational wave um, events and um, a lot of the times there will be noise at one detector such as a, an earthquake from I don't know Peru or something like it'll pick it up and wow. we want to make sure it's not an event so you look at the other detector and you know what they picked it up uh, or they didn't pick it up so you know if one picks it up and the other one doesn't then it's not an event or so, something like that um uh so yeah that's that's kind of how it works um I think I think I've heard stories of like car crashes nearby and i think there was one that was like a fridge or a microwave or some appliance that they thought was <laughs> a signal and it wasn't yeah, yeah there was a uh, one of like the funny ones was in hanford um i think it was hanford but there it was like really cold at one time so or uh, no it wasn't really cold but uh so ligo has to be really cold to work in the vacuum uh setting and when that is running it, the pipes outside actually kind of freeze like if there's water on it it will freeze the water and at one point they had like this pecking like this signal every so many seconds coming up in this one channel and they're like what the heck is it like we can't be having this many events like inconsistency so they actually sent uh one of the lego fellows out to look and it ended up being a bird uh, or a crow pecking on like ice on the pipes and they were like oh okay that's what it was. And then, like you mentioned, there was a fridge. Um, so in the Lego sites, there is actually a kitchen area where you can, like, go cook food and stuff. Because people are there, like, all night, so they need to eat. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was this, like, noise at, like, a, a certain hertz range that was kind of weird that was going on and off, on and off in the signals. And, again, they're like, what is this? Like, this is too repetitive and this is too weird like is something wrong with our detector or something and it ended up being when the fridge would turn off and on to cool itself so like they got rid of that fridge obviously <laughs> uh, they had to get rid of the fridge i heard i heard one oh, from man. livingston was uh because there's like a lot of tree loggers nearby and you could tell when the tree loggers would like take their break and go to lunch because there'd be a sudden drop around like noon and then it would come back around like 1 or 2 p.m. or something like that. Um. Yeah, when, when I was there, um, there was this train that would always pass and it was like you knew when it was passing because you would already recognize the signal or uh, in the data and um, I don't know why that train was running but it would it's like pretty close but it would always run and then like a few months later the train stopped running like they it, did, it didn't run anymore and you notice like you don't see that signal anymore so it's kind of funny like why like why is it there <laughs> i mean in the in the control room they have like different monitors of like the different noise sources right and like like the laser cavity noise sources etc and i always remember seeing the human like human factor had all of this stuff on it compared to all the other plots right like <laughs> right, environmental noise or yeah the seismic yeah so you do you work with data characterization right is that is that what that is like you know characterizing because uh, i always hear you say that but i'm never exactly sure is it like okay this data is a bird this is a human this is a fridge <laughs> yeah there's there's a few different areas of data detector characterization so some people do scattering noise or scattered light um others do other areas and i i work mainly on environmental noise um 
so like thunderclaps, trains, um, people. <laughs> uh, so uh, what I do is I look at the data mostly through the microphones because that's the best sensor for me to actually hear something. Um, and uh, I cr we like create pipelines to pick up this noise and say whether or not it's actually a thunderstorm or not. And if it is, well, we won't look at that section of data or we'll remove it completely. Um, so one of the pipelines, or there's a few pipelines LIGO uses to determine if there's a gravitational wave or not. So one of those is PyCBC uh, and the other, there's another one like GST-LAO, but I work, mainly, um, I work mainly on PyCBC, which is a, a Python-based uh, script for compact binary coalescences. So this one does a match filter system where you have a, a, a time series of data and you run across a waveform, uh, like a simulated waveform created by the mass and spin of the two objects colliding. And if it matches, well, you're like, okay, this, this should be a gravitational wave event. If it doesn't, it isn't. And then it, when you get a match, you actually get a ranking statistic of it. So it ranks it um, on how likely it is to be an event or not. And PyCBC actually uses the data quality flags, we call them, um, to determine this. So flags are glitches, or we call them triggers in the data that shouldn't be a gravitational wave event. So if a microphone picks up this signal or this glitch, we'll say, don't look there again, because it's not a signal. And um, there's like actually a funny story is that when 170817 came, there was a, a glitch right on top of it. And oh. when it was run through PyCBC, it removed that signal and yep. it said, there is no gravitational wave event here. But luckily- Nothing we to had, see here. <laughs> yeah. We, luckily they had other uh, pipelines running to check it. And I think Lau picked it up and said, you know, there is a signal here. So they yeah. had to go back and actually look through the data uh, more to like confirm it was there. So- Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing so like, that plot. Yeah, so like last year when I worked at Caltech, that was actually my project was to fix that error. So uh, I created like a new statistic ranking method. So instead of removing the glitch completely, it just re-ranked it uh, compared to the signal. So like if you had a, a chart and the glitch and signal were right at the same level after doing um, some re-ranking it. It's a lot of math, but I can't explain it right now. But it would actually pick up the signal um, statistic and lower the noise in the background. So you would clearly see the, the, the event. So that's like, that a, it's like something flagging signal to noise, right? Uh, essentially right. like a ratio. Um, I know you mentioned uh, that like you're fitting template waveforms just for, for those listening, those waveforms that are being compared to with your data are all generated from theory. That's all numerical relativity. So you can simulate what two black holes of different masses and, 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 and inclinations would look like in that data. And then you just, you're, I mean, do you know how they, do they just match one by one until one fits or is there like a more complicated sorting patterns uh, with that fitting process? I believe they just run it through all the templates they have. So they have like a few hundred and they'll, they'll, they have to test each and every one 
And I know, like, uh, one of the big things they're looking for right now is, like, the supernovae right. uh, waveforms. So they have, simu- like, they have simulated waveforms for those, but obviously you don't know if they're correct or if they're in the right metrics or not. So that's one of the big things going on right now to get a wave, to get a wave, well, we have waveforms, but to get more waveforms from that in case either LIGO or, like, a feature detector picks one up, we can match those. So, I mean, I know you're, oh, sorry, go ahead, Victor. I was going to say, so so just basically to sum it up, two huge objects, like two black holes or two stars, just spin around each other until they collide and then create this huge explosion that eventually creates a sound on Earth and LIGO picks up that sound. Um, That sounds right? Did I butcher that? (laughs) No, no, that's right. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's exactly a sound because... You can't actually hear it. It's more uh, an electrical signal that we can turn into a sound. So uh, okay. it's in the human hearing range. So we can like modify it to like be heard. Yeah, I know at one point during that event that we had back in September, you made a really, really cool analogy with the guitar. Uh, and uh, when, we first, when I first got on to the Zoom, I, Richard had his guitar out and I wasn't sure if that was related or not, but that was the first thing that I thought. <laughs> Might still be. Right. Right. So those, I guess, those that weren't there. <laughs> um, I made the analogy that um, LIGO works like an electric guitar. So when you have an electric guitar, if it's not connected to uh, an electrical signal or an amp, I guess, and you string it, you don't hear anything or you just hear like the strings plucking. Right. But once you plug it in, you can actually hear sound from it because of the currents being changed. Now, now it is true if you were up close enough to that black hole event, barring all other unpleasant circumstances, um, even though you're in the vacuum of space, since, as Brina said, it's in the audible range, the, the frequency merger, it would vibrate your, your eardrums and you would hear it. But since we're just so far away or in time, essentially in space, uh, it's so weak at this point. Um, what, Brina, uh, how big is the LIGO arm? And what's the relative change we're looking at? Like, you know, because we're seeing these things from so far away, right? So they're weak. Right. So uh, each Lego arm is about four kilometers long. You know, they they actually had like a whole um, investigation, out, I guess, or something, I guess you can call it, to determine what a good length would be. Because you want... The, lo- the arms as long as possible to create a more sensitive detector but once you reach a certain point earth's curvature actually affects this so i guess they settled on four kilometers at least in america and um i guess the sensitivity would be to detect some things like about the size smaller than the width of a proton i think it was i believe yeah so it's very very small um and a lot of people i know like one of my other colleagues asked, like, there's a restroom in LIGO. Why doesn't it pick up that noise as a, as a detection, like, when people flush or stuff like that? And I'm like, well, you're not looking in that hertz range. Right. Like, you're, you, you're looking for a certain signal, like, in, I, I can't remember the exact range, but you can like, tell something like... that is terrestrial versus not. Right. And I think after full advanced LIGO, it's, I mean, the sensitivity is like a curve, right? And so like everything above that U, you can detect. 
And I think it's something, isn't it between like some couple of 10 hertz and uh, I think peak sensitivity is 100 hertz, right? Or am I wrong? I, I actually forget off the top of my head. No, I think you're right. I don't know if it changed recently or not, but that was the situation. And, and my reason for asking is because I think it's in the range of power outlets, right? Because power outlets oscillate at 60 hertz. So like technically there is a, isn't there like a spike in the, in the sensitivity curve at 60 hertz? Like that's where your, yeah. all your yeah, power that's... outlets are. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Interesting. This gravitational wave looks like a giant power outlet in space. <laughs> <laughs> could you oh. talk can you just talk a little bit more about the the actual event that happened because I, I just feel like that's that part of it is is so amazing so the gravitational waves are the the you know the part of it that come here but like what actually happens out in space you, you mentioned it was i mean these are probably some of the most violent events in all of the universe <laughs> yeah i don't know do you want to take it or do I want me to oh, take it? Oh, I thought it? you were, you're the expert, Brita. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm asking you now. Uh, I, could, I could certainly answer questions if you want, but I'd, I'd much rather give it to Brina if, if she wants to answer it. Okay. I mean, I know I mentioned a bit before, you know, we have these. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. No, no, you, you mentioned compact binary coalescence. What is that? That's, that's a broad range of events, right? Right. So um, those are most the objects that are compact. So you have like black holes, uh, neutron stars, um, and they hold a bunch of mass in a very tiny object. So you can have a black hole like the size, like, I don't know, six solar masses, but it weighs intense, like intensely, like a huge amount. And <laughs> since those two masses bend the space and time around them, their weights will eventually come together if they're close enough. So I know like if you have two people sitting on a bed, if one of them leans in a bit more, you're, you'll eventually lean into them because you're so close to each other, right? right. Uh, that's kind of what's happening. So their gravity is pulling each other closer and closer. And when they get close enough, though, um, um, there's like these three stages where they um, in spiral uh, merge. I forgot. And ring down, there you go. Those are the three steps. So they spin together, merge, and then you have this ring down of the gravitational wave. And um, when that happens, there is a new, if it's two black holes, you'll have a new black hole formed from those two previous masses. If it's two neutron stars, um, you'll, I, I think you have another new, uh, I mean, some funny it stuff can on, happen. It depends yeah. on their mass if they're just not to just to jump in there real quick if the neutron star total mass and like if they're spinning fast enough they could have actually quite a high mass but usually they'll probably collapse to a black hole um if right. they're above a certain mass so right um so yeah that, that's kind of what happens mostly um and it, it was like it's funny because before you wouldn't you didn't know how many um systems you had in in space especially with black holes because you can't see them so you didn't know how many pairs of black holes you had near each other and then when you finally get these signals you discover like you you find like um recently you know through you have like five a week popping up like just colliding and colliding it's it's very catastrophic i would say but it's beautiful at the same time <laughs> Yeah, there's something Crazy beautiful how about it. That is. Right, but then knowing that 
you're hearing all of these mergers happening all the time around us, just kind of uh, like a regular thing. Um, yeah. So, so the compact, so Pi CBC, when you were talking about Pi CBC, that is code you, uh, that is matching predicted what, what the signal of what we would predict to like black holes would look like of different masses. Um, right. And comparing it to data, time, when you say time series data, we're, we're observing over time and then right. we're getting a signal, right? So. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of parameters, but like the main ones would be the mass and the spin of the two objects. There's a few other parameters. I think there's like about, um, I can't remember if it's 15 or 17 in total. Yeah, but something, something big. all those parameters to create these waveforms. And I, I know like people I worked with over the summer worked on those um, mm -hmm. to test them and to create new ones. Um, so they're, they're, they're still being used. <laughs> And I believe it's harder to 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 uh, predict neutron stars. I think because there's more physics that like there's more assumptions. I mean, black holes are simpler intrinsically. I think like neutron star waveform models are harder to make. I could be wrong here. I'm not actually in that business, but um, from what I've gathered, I think it's even harder to predict those. Or there's at one point you can't tell if it's a black hole or a neutron star, so there's some degeneracy in the signal. Mm -hmm. What other what other sources could you have? Like what other gravitational wave sources aside from compact binary coalescence? Uh, I know I mentioned like the supernovae uh, situation. I'm not too familiar with that, mm -hmm. um, but they, they call those the burst um, events. So events that create uh, gravitation gravitational waves like on their own. I would say um, from the reactions and the, the, the explosions they have. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head. So then basically, so LIGO is, it has like a certain amount of, of sensitivity and, and, you know, it's getting more and more sensitive. And so it's, it's sensitive to the, to uh, black holes and, and to neutron stars merging. And so I'm assuming supernovae because it's by itself is not as powerful as those two. And so it, I don't, I guess none have been detected yet. Um, I, I, I mean, we don't know. We don't know if we've seen them or not because we don't have the waveforms. We don't know if we have the correct waveforms for one thing. Also, we don't know if we're in the right Hertz range to look at them. Um, you know, there's a couple of different factors that we, when I say we, I mean me, <laughs> that we don't know yet. Um, no, not us, just. just <laughs> not, people probably know, not me. <laughs> Yeah, and those, those uh, supernovae are hard to model because they're called threshold events because like, okay, so since so, so we don't know what the shape of their waveform would be, we could only essentially say, oh, they're probably s stronger signal than a certain amount and we'll try to trigger that. But um, uh, depending on the shape of the supernova, I'm sure. And yeah, Victor, you're right. The supernovae are going to produce a lot weaker of a gravitational wave signal than a compact merger. Yeah, that, can, can you talk a little bit about the, that's something that's really interesting to me, the different observations. And so there, there's different runs that LIGO does and, and every time it gets a little bit more sensitive, right? Yeah, uh, so um, they, I, I can't remember the exact year they started, but I know they started um, around, they had 01, 
which was the first observing run, and they didn't pick up any signals from them because they didn't have the, enough sensitivity. And then they have these, um, can you remember what they're called, Richard? The, the like, en like engineering <laughs> they, runs and... and, right. and engineering runs yeah there's like oh oh is your obs observing run and then in between they like shut down and they have upgrades right is that what you're talking about yeah i couldn't remember the name off the top of my head but between those uh the main observation runs they have engineering runs so they bring in new uh materials or new um i guess i know at one point they replaced like the mirrors in the detectors and they replaced i don't know like the fibers that held them up and whatnot just because they learned that um one does better than the other or the laser bent one mirror or, so, or something like some other things like a lot of stuff happens so when they do these engineering runs they test the detector to see if they improve the sensitivity or not and it was funny because uh I, um 150914 did I say that right? 15, Yeah. Yes. Um, was actually, <laughs> I can't remember, um, was actually picked up during an engineering run. So like the first detection ever was picked up then and they were like, oh, is somebody pulling a prank on us? Because, you know, some people, um, they, the scientists at the site actually do injections. So injections are tests of the channels and of the detector to see if it's functioning properly. So they, they had to question that um, when they get an event, they have to question it very seriously because you don't want to be saying one thing and then, you know, it's not a signal. Um, right. Especially during the engineering run, they had just turned on the detector and you get the signal and it's a little questionable, you know? They're, like, I know a scientist at Caltech mentioned, like, he wanted to disprove this just because, like, he couldn't believe it. You know, like, yeah. I think that's... Yeah. Being a good scientist, you know, you want to question your own work um, to the fullest and not just say, oh, look, we got the signal, like, I'll take that. Like, it, you don't know, like, you don't want to make a mistake, but, um, so they had that, and then 01 came, and I don't, I don't believe, did they pick up um, a signal in 01? Oh, man, I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna lose scientific credibility. I, I, um, I don't remember. For for all the astronomers listening, I've I've done follow up since O two, so I wasn't in the O one right. era myself. Uh, <laughs> okay, so anyways, um, we can skip that. <laughs> so then O two came, and then it got a bit more sensitive. So uh, we picked up a few more signals. I think seventeen oh eight seventeen came during O two, and then each each run lasts about a year or so. So you start one day and you end on that date the next year. So then after O2, you had the third or next engineering run and you add more upgrades to that and you keep improving the detector. And then O3, which was last, it was 2019 to 2020. Um, that's when LIGO became really sensitive. You, you know, you have advanced LIGO now um, and you're picking up at least the black hole mergers like five times a week or like twice a day. And by then you kind of know more what you're looking at because you've had some signals before then. So um, like right now they're doing uh, upgrades as we speak. <laughs> um, they're actually, they had actually moved like some of the, the materials from Hanford to Livingston. And then um, 
they're working on Kagger right now, which isn't Lego, but I know they're doing that. And uh, I guess they're testing right now. I can't remember. But yeah, so then we have 04 like coming up soon. I don't know the exact date, but yeah. So I want to, I want to, I, I honestly, I think the, I don't know all the details, but I just, the, the history of, of everything is, uh, you know, in terms of LIGO and, and gravitational waves is really interesting. I, I, I reached for this book because I, for some reason I, I had forgotten, but it just hit me. Um, I, I want to read something about the, the 2015 one. And it is from a book called The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking by Katie Mack. And, and it's, this starts off uh, chapter seven. Chapter seven is called uh, Bounce. And it says, on September 14th, 2015, at 9.50 a.m. and 45 seconds UTC, you were, for the briefest moment, just a little bit taller. The gravitational wave crest that washed through you had been traveling across the cosmos, warping space itself in its wake for 1.3 billion years ever since it was set off by the violent merging of two black holes each 30 times more massive than the sun you might not have noticed the boost after all you grew by less than one millionth the width of a proton but physicists at the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory did the first detection of gravitational waves was the culmination of decades of a long search requiring the development of new technologies and the creation of the most sensitive equipment in the history of experimental physics. Finally, detecting those ripples in space-time was heralded by the, or as the ultimate vindication of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Beautiful. That was Katie Mack, right? Yes, that was astrophysicist Katie Mack. Great book. It's called The End of Everything, and it's about, um, every chapter is a different theory about how the universe is going to end. So yeah <laughs> um that's awesome yeah it's it's a great book but can, can we talk a little bit about about that how she ends it talking about um einstein's theory and you were you were saying uh i thought about it because you were saying how that there was that one physicist who really really wanted to to disprove it and i mean even einstein did not believe that that it was going to be detected right one of my favorite things about that is hearing how how he predicted gravitational waves but he said something along the lines of yeah they, they probably exist but i don't think humans will ever will never find them <laughs> um yeah so so when 1509-14 did come out you know there was a big controversy i guess um so when you know they kind of confirmed this event and they were getting ready to release the papers they asked the people there at those sites, like, do you want your name on this paper or not? Because it was such a big announcement that, you know, if it, if it may have uh, been proven false later, you know, you have that in your history now. And I know a bunch of people actually left, um, like, the collaboration or, like, they just, they couldn't, like, they couldn't um, agree to having it be a real signal. So, um I don't know. It's crazy. Um, it is like because I mean it had never been detected before. So I mean they're looking at it and they're like, right. it, it it worked, but but did it? I mean, <laughs> also the signal was able. You, Brina, you mentioned it was during an engineering run, 
and the signal was visible and the waveform was visible before any processing of the data or like noise reduction was even done. So just, I'm trying to build a, a little bit bigger of a picture of like, why was, why were people so skeptical? It was also at a time it wasn't expected at a sensitivity we didn't expect. The signal was super strong. You could see it before there was noise processing. So like, no wonder it, it seemed like nobody, not a lot of people could uh, believe it at first. So. Right, and it's still one of like the loudest signals to date, mm -hmm. which is crazy because even though we've ramped up sensitivity since then, um, we've I mean we've become more sensitive to other noises that aren't gravitational wave events. But you should also pick up the the noise from events, so it's it's still pretty mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it is. Uh, Go ahead, Victor. You sound like, you sound like you're gonna. Say <laughs> I was something. gonna. I was gonna say. I also read something really funny about the about in 2015 before they they released it, like before they actually announced it to the world that they had some like indoor party and the, the way that it was leaked was there was like a, a cake from from NASA I think that said hey congratulations and somebody tweeted that and <laughs> that's how the world found out. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also funny because I, I, I wasn't there at the time, obviously, I was still in high school, but um, I heard stories from the people there that that day that they were celebrating with the cake, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson went, and I think they were doing like a tour of the observatory, and they saw the cake, like the cake was right there in front of everybody, and they're like, what's the cake for? And I think someone like said, like, oh, it's someone's birthday or something, like, we don't know. <laughs> so like, they had to really keep it like to themselves, like... I don't know if I could like if I could keep that secret. <laughs> also, also, seventeen oh eight seventeen was leaked too. It's it's funny how there's like you know in science there's like leaks of of things before they happen. I think there was a tweet that got sent out before the announcement, and um, seventeen oh eight seventeen was the first uh, neutron star merger. So it happened twenty seventeen August seventeen, and um, this one tweet basically triggered a bunch of amateur astronomers to look at all of the manifests of all the high energy satellites and they were like oh uh fermi swift hubble all these other satellites started looking at this one galaxy hmm i wonder why they're all looking at this one galaxy and they started to put the pieces together but it's just it, i love these types of stories you hear like all the time you know human nature we we want to get that out and talk about it so yeah, yeah, I know, like, with music, like, with albums and stuff, at least, maybe not for bigger, but, like, for smaller bands, it's it's a very common thing that, you know, when an album's being worked on, there's a lot of people that work on, on albums, and at some point, one of those people will just, you know, show it to a friend and say, hey, check check this out, and that's how things get leaked, and I guess, even in the science world, it's kind of the same thing, I mean, there's so many people working on, on these experiments and finding these out, that when you detect the first binary neutron star merger there's bound to be one person to tell a friend or tell a, a colleague or somebody like hey guess what we did and yeah that's just going to lead to a chain reaction of uh leakage <laughs> chain, <laughs> that was a weird weird that's word not the, that is not the title of this podcast <laughs> a chain reaction of leakage is not going to be the yeah, I know people told me like I they're like I couldn't even tell my wife like why I had to go to work at three in the morning because of a signal or something like they had to keep it to themselves. 
to it birthday party. Yeah, we're I mean, having a birthday party. <laughs> uh, Brina, you remember to work at three a.m. It's a really important birthday party. Okay, it's it's, it's the birthday party of a new black hole. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, when when Tauros participated in getting the optical counterpart, I remember we weren't able to say anything for a while either. Um, especially when the data first came in and we were looking at it and it's like, Oh, yep. There's an optical counterpart. Uh, but we like the, the memorandum of understanding was we're all going to release our scientific reports at once. So all 70 something observatories are going to publish at once. That's when we're going to announce it. Um, and until then, don't tell your friends, don't tell your, your wife or your kids or <laughs> your dogs, cats. <laughs> yeah, the cats know already, but the dogs don't tell them, you know. <laughs> yeah, cats know things before humans, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're the ones that told Albert Einstein about gravitation. <laughs> uh, so and I think I think that's that's a pretty good segue into talking about a little bit more about the, the university and the Center for Gravitational Wave Astronomy and um, all of our great friend, Dr. Diaz. And uh, yeah, the gravitational wave observed in, in 2017 and, and multi-messenger astronomy. Uh, lots of things there, so I'll just leave it to you guys now. Go ahead. Oh, wow. <laughs> Breen and I were both like, uh, no. Um. No, sorry, let, let me just uh, set the stage a little bit more. So, you know, we, sure. a, a big reason for the, the South Texas Astronomical Society is, is one, um, there's a lot going on here in, in Brownsville, in South Texas. There, there's so much going on. You know, we have SpaceX here building Starship on Boca Chica Beach. They're already doing testing. That's that's huge. You know, the first inter interplanetary spaceport. Uh, but also, I mean, we've we're not new to space and science. And and the university and and Dr. Diaz and and you guys have played a huge role in this thing called multi messenger astronomy. That's one of the most Ground, ground, groundbreaking uh, fields. Just one of the the coolest things going on in science right now. You know, merging black holes and neutron stars, and um, and we have an observatory here that that played a pretty big role, and you guys have played pretty big roles here. Uh, so yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about that? I'll leave this to Richard actually, because oh, I wasn't here <laughs> in 2017. <laughs> I mean. I mean, uh, Brina, the, I, I just, I do want to say that, like, you were, you were here during a majority, I would say the, the peak uh, activity of CTMO, especially in relation to this type of work, like following of transients. And we just dumped a bunch of words out there for people. So like multi-messenger astronomy transients, what are all these things? How to see, what is CTMO? What are, you've heard us say all this stuff before. Um, Long story short, and I, I should let, you know, Breed and every and then Victor talk about this too, but um, the detection of black holes, neutron stars with LIGO in gravitational waves was essentially the, gravi the gravitational analog to when Galileo first turned the, the spyglass to the sky and it became a telescope. And this is a new window on the universe that optical, radio, all electromagnetic is not privy to. So now you have two, essentially two messengers. There's other ones, but let's just say right now, E&M, gravity. It's the first time in history that we can observe the universe in both of those things. Um, carrying completely different pieces of information, but when looked at together, builds a more comprehensive and integrated picture of an astrophysical event. So um, multi-messenger astronomy, it's a new era, uh, last five years, six years, 
essentially it's the era of having multiple messengers or these force channels giving speaking to you from the heavens um it's not just it's not i know victor would like that but it's not it's not uh just photons anymore it's also geometry so um the role ctmo has is to train students and teachers to do a lot of these scientific objectives but uh, uh one of those big objectives is to follow up transients so like anything that happens in time either really briefly or something that changes in time in the heavens is a transient event and gravitational waves are transient events they occur and then they they're done but um they're caused by events that could potentially have other information that other telescopes could see so like ctmo will respond to gravitational waves try to look at the spot from which it came and see if they could see the explosion that caused the visible explosion let's say that caused the gravitational wave event okay so so brina was there from 2018 onward so 03 essentially there was a lot of responses um ctmo at that time was responding to ligo event ligo triggered events the most during that time uh 2017 was a big milestone um it was the first time two neutron stars were were seen merging and there was it was observed in every wavelength of light from radio to gamma there was a gamma ray burst there was x-ray radio optical all that um and since then there's been multiple neutron star mergers and even a neutron star black hole merger um but cgwa center for gravitational wave astronomy plays a central role in all that that's the center at utrgv that coordinates the observatory it's also the hub the representative hub of LIGO. So like through CGWA, Brina was able to work with LIGO Livingston and go to Caltech and do these things. Um, and it just so happens that CGWA houses some of the largest contingent of LIGO scientists in the US, you know, rivaling MIT and Caltech. So a lot of the scientists that still are there, some of our professors who are teaching Brina and myself um, developed a lot of the initial stuff in LIGO. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, I tried to give an overall picture. I don't know, Brina, do you want to add anything to that? Like your perspective or did I miss something? Um, no, I mean, I think it's just interesting because, you know, we aren't, like CTMO isn't the only one working on LIGO. There's other groups. So like we kind of all come together under the Center for Gravitational Wave Astronomy. You know, you have the people that work on the optics or the people that work on the burst signals and then you have the detected characterization. So like, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, in such a small university, you have a very large amount of people in from the collaboration. Mm -hmm. those, those, yeah. first, those, those first simulations, just real quick, uh, just for some history, I think, um, the first successful black hole merger simulations were done by Campanelli and she was at UTB when this occurred. I think it was like 2003, 2004 or something like that. And so like, that's just an example from a theoretic, I mean, we, you mentioned instrumentation and optics. There was also theoretical stuff done there. I know um, uh, Joseph Romano, who is a pioneer in the stochastic gravitational wave background, which we can get into. That's another source, but that's more complicated. Uh, developed a lot of stuff at, uh, at UTB at the time. So um, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just like CGWA is like this hub and there's all of these different pieces contributing to LIGO, including the multi-messenger outlet, the optical stuff as well. What, what blows me away is the, the, the dedication that they, <laughs> the dedication 
that that they kind of need because uh, I, I mean I hope I get the timeline right. I'm not going to say the exact date, but I know around 2000, the year 2000 was when C, when CGWA was started, and then I think in 2002 was when they they received the, the first big uh, round of funding from uh, NASA from the University Research Centers grant, um, and and that's what kind of kicked off that program. But 2002, that's still 13 years before the the detection from 2015, and then um, and it, I mean it was two more years after that until the the first detection that where multi messenger astronomy was possible. So that's a lot of years to be you know dedicated and to be continuing to to do research on something where I mean I don't know what if they never what if LIGO never would have detected that like it's crazy how physics and, and these sorts of experiments are really just a, a gamble almost well not a gamble it's not a gamble because gamble is based on just chance and, and I guess physics you can't it kind of is but it's also I mean you put a lot of work into into the theory so it's not I guess right. you can't completely uh, compare those. I mean, it's it's a it's a educated gamble, maybe if anything. Um, you're trying your best to to look at the evidence and to interpret it very carefully. That's why I mean, when LIGO made the first detection, no wonder. I mean, it's it, for something. I, it, let's speak to your Carl Sagan fandom as well as mine. Uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And to claim that we have detected gravitational waves and the first black holes in in one measurement for the first time, where a lot of people are already skeptical about it. Like, no wonder there was a lot of hesitation. Apologies yeah. for the dog barking earlier. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe your dog had a, that was a very insightful comment that needed to be uh, added to the podcast. <laughs> Um, but I wanted to mention, like, it was crazy because, you know, when I worked at Livingston, I met, I still work, but I've met people that have been in LIGO since it started. And, like, even since I was born, like, it's crazy to, to me to think that they are dedicated almost like their entire life to this, to this one um, project. Yeah, like, it's a, it's a multi-generational family. Like, you're, you must be maybe third generation or fourth gen I, I don't know how it would work but yeah you're it, that's awesome that you're continuing that and you were there at the culmination of, of the discovery like this this is all coming to fruition right now and you're right in the middle of it you're working with the I mean uh, people that have been involved for like you said quite a while that's, that's amazing it is so can you talk a little bit more about the, the process of the uh, I guess, I guess you, um, the research part of it, the, the research part of multi-messenger astronomy. And so it, it happened because, I, I mean, I, I guess more of the specifics about, it, so this explosion happens, you know, when there is a, a neutron star merger, because with, if two black holes merge, well, they eat up all the light, so you don't really get much. But if it's two neutron stars, you get a nice explosion. And so how, how long does that stick around and, and what kind of... Um, data can you get from the observatory and, and why does that matter? Is that Sabrina? That's to both of you. <laughs> this is just like stars on tap where somebody would ask Sabrina questions. She'd look at me at, in the audience and be like, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, okay. I, I could say this. Okay. So like 
so just let's look at the uh, neutron stars, right? Two neutron stars merge. The gravitational wave happens at the be at the beginning uh, when so so we mentioned that LIGO peaks at 100 hertz or something like that. 100 hertz. That's 100 cycles per second. So what that means is when the black holes are getting closer, they spin faster. When they're when they're going around each other 100 times a second, LIGO can detect that at peak sensitivity. That's what that means. Okay. So when the neutron stars are producing gravitational waves, that's right at that merger, and then they merge. Okay. At, and then a lot of stuff happens in quick succession. Two seconds after merger, at least from the first detection, you have a gamma ray burst if it's pointed towards you. So gamma ray gets picked up. There's like a, it's like gravitational waves, two seconds later, pop, little, little gravitation, uh, uh, gamma ray burst. If you're sensitive enough and you have a low frequency radio array, you could pick up a radio burst as well because the two neutron stars are moving so fast that their ejecta, some of it is, uh, achieves escape velocity and gets flung out tidally which is a rapid deceleration that produces radio waves. Okay, so you have radio, early radio, early ultraviolet, and early uh, uh, gamma rays. Then for about a couple of days to a week, you have optical and infrared. Infrared out, out to two weeks. And then after a month or longer, you have x-ray and, and, uh, and then radio wave emission as that cocoon of exploding material slows down and produces radio emission in the interstellar medium surrounding the environment. So... If you're so so right there, I said a lot, but basically, two takeaways: all of that information comes from so many different channels, and those channels occur at different time scales. Like if you're not looking at the right time, two second short gamma ray burst, you'll miss it. Radio waves appear and they peak like like we didn't see with the very large array. Um, uh, Dr. Alessandro Corsi, who's at Texas Tech University, did the radio follow up of, of GW seventeen oh eight seventeen and. Uh, they noted radio emission not very strong right after the event, but after a month, the radio emission actually got higher and higher and higher. Whereas they're still seeing it, they, they still saw the radio co counterpart to GW170817 a year later. And it was it, because that cocoon is just expanding. It's like a supernova, like that you could see a supernova for years. Because it explodes, and then you're just watching that explosion gets just get bigger, and it's just moving, moving, moving into interstellar space. And a lot of stuff happens in between the explosion and it getting to be very big and, and diffuse. So, um, uh, CTMO and Tor CTMO is a member of Taurus, Taurus, the Transient Optical Robotic Observatory of the South, which is a network of telescopes. There's multiple collaborations like Taurus that does this, but basically see what CTMO would do in this whole picture is gravitational wave is detected. LIGO sends an alert. We get the alert. We know roughly where it came from and we point the camera and we just take pictures in that region and see if we can find a, a transient, a little explosion um, optically. So that's, that's where the role of CTMO is in that whole picture. Yeah. So, so what does it mean when you can get data on the explosion? And so lining up what you get from LIGO and what you get from CTMO. Yeah, you get a lot of, you get a lot of different pieces of information. So like the gravitational waves will tell you like the mass of the system. It'll tell you their angular momentum, or at least to some degree of degeneracy, like there's some uncertainty there. And, um, but if let's say you detected an optical, 
the uh, the models of these of these processes give you information along different channels. So, like optical emission tells you how fast your fastest ejecta is released, um, and depending on the number of components, like in a neutron star merger, you can have ejecta moving at seventy percent the speed of light initially. Um, optical will pick that up. It'll the infrared and optical will also tell you the time evolution of it. So, if you take a picture every night. Actually, you'll probably have to take a picture every hour because kilonovi, which are the optical counterpart to, a, to neutron stars merging, they last optically only a few days. So as you see that, that, that light change in time and you see it in different colors. So let's say it's really blue in the beginning and then it turns to become really red at the end. That tells you about the radioactive decay of the material in the ejecta. So like... And that's just optical. Radio tells you stuff about the speed and mass of the ejecta. X-ray tells you stuff. And it all comes together as one comprehensive picture. It's beautiful, wow. really. That's why I love it's that's the field I'm in. I mean, Brina and I are in ascent in, in, in that regard the same field. We're working in different channels, but Brina's working in the gravitational wave regime, and I'm I'm the one that gets the trigger from all that hard work. And I'm like, okay, now it's the optical people. We have to go look for the explosion. It all comes together as one picture. Yeah, multi-messenger. It's really beautiful. Multi-messenger. And what, sorry, I keep asking, I keep expanding this broader, but I, I have no, this seen- this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had, I had to see um, like phrases that, that explain like, well, what, what does that mean? And, and they were very, very like, you know, you, so you have those, that data, you can get all this data, but really what does it lead to? And, and something that keep, kept coming up was um, we study the origins of the universe, basically. Like we study these, these events through finding out all of that and getting all that, those little pieces of data and putting different types of data together. We can find out more about the like the big bang and, and just the origin and birth and death of the universe and black holes all together. So can you talk a little more about that? Brina. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm not being interviewed here. <laughs> just kidding. Nah. I, thought this was <laughs> I thought we were just having a conversation. Nah, I'm just um, kidding. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I'm more just on the gravitational wave side. So I don't know if I can say the right words for this. Well, how about, how about this? Um, the, 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 all of the engineering that goes into LIGO, right? Um, all of the advancements in the detector capabilities, you know, not just the astrophysical implication of what we're, what we're looking at, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of um, applications for all the engineering feats that go into detecting something smaller than the width of a proton. I mean, the amount, I, I feel like that's nothing short of magic, really. Like, I mean, I know it's physics, which is essentially magic, but um, right. Like have, have people, have you come across when you're working with people at LIGO, um, talking about like even applications to society or like how that engineering benefits people? I feel like I have, <laughs> I don't know how to quote them though. Um, That's all good. I know That's like a, a bunch of times in, in the, like the seminars they give or stuff, they, there, there's, the question that people ask them like well what is this all for like what like what is the reason for all this and um like they, they normally answer you know it's for science like we it's 
just like what else do you want us to answer like um oh, answer science point. <laughs> science you know, for the, the sake of science curiosity is there why not reach out and like see what we can get from it right you know we, we always want to advance in anything we do and learn more um so like you know not even 10 10 years ago we knew or not even how many six years ago or so we didn't even know gravitation waves existed and now that we do know they exist we can do so much more you know we the upgrades that we do in LIGO or stuff we, we can apply those to other things like you mentioned and you know with one piece of information you learned that these counterparts last this long or they exist um yeah and I don't know I mean no that's 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 exactly spot on um I guess from from an astrophysical perspective, I know Victor, you said about uh, the origins of the universe. In, in in principle, now that we could see gravitational waves, we could see farther back in time than just with electromagnetic information. Uh, we know the origin of some elements now that we didn't know before. Like we know where gold comes from now. We didn't know where it came from before that. Um, and something that I haven't heard before, but I think just from practice and observation is that um, the ability, like there's so many papers coming out on how to respond quickly to things. Now that we're in this new era, like how does the telescope system change? How does all, how do people react to these things? Machine learning is important in there. So um, it could be even as far reaching as, uh, as planetary defense from an asteroid, right? Because asteroids are transient events. So like if telescopes are getting better and better at responding to quick things, then suddenly we could respond to even potentially earth-changing things. So um, there's, a, there's a lot, they're very kind of scattered, but there are a lot of applications to this whole thing that, that greatly benefit humans. Yeah. So not to get more metaphysical and philosophical again, but no, when, when, we, when you mentioned that answer about, you know, science for the sake of science, it made me think about, a, I was, recently listening to uh, the, the newest Joe Rogan, Elon Musk podcast, mm -hmm. and they brought up the, the, the big question, you know, what the meaning of life and all this stuff. And, and uh, Elon said something that I thought was kind of interesting. He talked about, he said um, that, you know, like the universe could be that, that it's the wrong, that basically we're asking the wrong question that we, the universe is kind of the answer and we're here to kind of understand it. But um, at the same time, the, the question what is the meaning of life is a little bit uh we're not there yet because we we don't know the right question to ask so when i i don't know that's kind of what i what i thought of when you were saying science for the sake of science like it's there and we're studying it and we're understanding it and we're learning things as we go and we don't know what we're going to find but uh maybe that's that's the point that maybe we'll discover something that we never even thought to ask about and and yeah, that would lead to some a better understanding of ourselves and our origins and our, our place in the this violent universe. Yeah, I mean, like there's there's been a not like for Lego, but there's been other experiments in science that have led to answers, not even on purpose, you know, you have accidental answers. Sometimes you don't get the answer you were looking for, but even though it wasn't the answer you're looking for, it is an answer to something. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the, the cosmic microwave background, isn't that found like completely by accident? 
Yeah, the same the same birds that were pecking at the uh, the vacuum tubes of LIGO were the ones that left the bird droppings on the uh, L Labs antenna. No, but um, <laughs> yes, that was discovered by accident. Um, just you know, Penzias and Wilson. I think it was 1965, working out of Bell Labs, New Jersey, and they were picking up this static that was isotropic, meaning they pointed the, the, their radio dish at every single point of the sky and they couldn't remove the source of signal. They, they found bird droppings on the radio receiver and they cleaned that off. It still didn't do anything. And um, they realized that that signal was the echo of the Big Bang <laughs> that they were picking up in, in a poetic yeah. sense. But uh, I also want to say to your point, uh, to both of your points, because you both spoke on this, is that, um, you know, we don't really fully understand even what it means to be, you know, human or conscious and why we're doing the things that we're doing. But at this point in time, it might have to be sufficient to say, well, plants, it's in their nature to convert to, to through photosynthesis, convert photons to sugar. Um, it's in a dog's nature to bark. It's in humans nature to always be pushing forward in the frontier. And we may, we don't know why, or at least we have ideas, but, we don't know why we do it, but we're doing it. And it seems to be so far that what, the more we do that, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a revolution in understanding, um, has a lot of detrimental impacts, but also a lot of beneficial impacts as well, right? So um, I always think of the atomic bomb when I think of like the ultimate example of the benefit and detriment of a scientific discovery because for one you can have such human horror come from it but at the same time you have the ability to take you to nearby planets and to basically solve the energy crisis if you did fusion so like you have salvation in one hand and the destruction in the other and they're both from the same discovery it's it's that's like the the penultimate example that comes to my mind at least when we talk about stuff like this yeah, yeah. Even uh, Carl Sagan and Pell Blue Dot, which I'm still not done with yet. I haven't had a lot of time to read. I'm talking 62. about. <laughs> I'm on the last chapter. You know. um, I was reading a chapter about asteroids, and and yeah, he was. I mean, it, it's crazy how um, back then in in the 80s and 90s, all these thoughts were already being formulated. And I think he he was such a, a imaginative person, and he was talking about like asteroid deflection technology and you know how in the future we should get to a place where if we find out there's an asteroid coming to us we need to have the technology to be able to to go to it and, and deflect it whether it's like a bomb or, or um, yeah, whatever way but how scary it is that we also have to worry about well if humans um, if we end up smart enough and, and technologically advanced enough to build uh, technology that can deflect asteroids we have to also be careful that humans don't use that same technology to to kill each other to blow up another country or it's like do we really we don't want it to happen because you never know when somebody's going to rise up crazy enough to use it on another country they even talked about the, the potential of using asteroid deflection to hit countries which is insane because he said and it's just yeah things he threw out but it, it, it's scary <laughs> it's scary but then you have bold bold people that i think the boldness in science at least in my experience and i think brina could say a lot about this too is um 
pushing it a direction that you don't know how it's going to turn out and you could put all of your resource into it you could sacrifice your social life your uh sometimes your mental sanity you get let you don't get a lot of sleep you're studying for exam but um you're pushing forward in an area of research that might not ever even be the correct thing like it you might have a theory that just doesn't turn out to be correct and that that that's the risk um so yeah there's there's a whole there, it 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 does require an ounce of courage not only for that but also for well what does the implication of my discovery mean for humanity can you imagine how einstein must have felt after seeing the implications of e equals mc squared like that that like it's just to, to everybody that's a popular equation but to a physicist that is a huge insight into nature that that there's so much untapped energy and matter that you could release it and it would be catastrophic if you released it that's that's i mean that's a huge weight on someone's shoulder for discovering that yeah i feel like questions. the podcast just took a very dark turn <laughs> we're now entering <laughs> into the dark part of the podcast we always, but this always seems to happen where like the last episode we were talking about dinosaurs and Yoshi and then we talked about anxiety and, and, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I know you talked about like, I kind of getting back to LIGO a little bit, but, um, how you got involved, you talked about that, but you know, what was your, what was like the, the, you spent a couple of times at LIGO facility, right? When you were at Louisiana state, um, right. Tell us about like some of the, 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 the daily, like the daily life was there. Like, what was your, or did you have like a 2 a.m. shift? Like what, what was like, it's, what was it like working with people at the living site? Like, let's bring it back to a little bit of a positive thing here. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, you know, I, for one thing, I felt like the youngest person there because everybody was like either a grad student or like they've been there since Lego started. Like I mentioned, um, so it was kind of funny because I felt like their child that was just playing around in the detector and trying to figure out what they were doing. Um, but it was nice um, because I didn't have to work at night, thankfully. <laughs> I didn't have to be there at night. It was just uh, daytime um, visits and whatnot. But it was interesting because I had the opportunity to just look at stuff there and ask the questions right there like why does this work or why are you doing this you know why are you breaking this instrument like such like things like that and um the people there are so knowledgeable like i couldn't imagine myself ever being as smart as them but then again they've been working on it since the 90s or the 80s so like they're like the masters of this at this point um and it was fun, you know, they, they taught me a lot on how to communicate the science they're doing. And even if it wasn't intentional, they, they gave me a lot of information that I didn't even ask for and didn't even think I would need to ask. Um, and they were, they were really nice about it too. Like they won't like ridicule you and like, like tell you like, you know, that's a dumb question. Like, why are you asking? Like, no, they're like really open to all the questions you have, no matter how small they are or how like weird they seem. Um, and they're, I don't know. It was really great. Um, I know like one of my favorite things there was the tours that would happen. So they have at Livingston, they have like this education center 
and you would have like schools go or people go and the public to see like physics um demos in their in the building they have there and it was interesting to see the people connect gravitational waves and like the detector to those small uh physics demos um and i i know like one of my friends that was there with me in the summer she's from another university but she worked with me and we were working on the project with thunderstorms right so we had to characterize these uh thunderclaps and one day that we were there she was helping the tours go on and there was a thunderstorm coincidentally so the people actually asked her like do these thunderstorms affect the gravitational wave detector and she was like well like you know what I have a lot to say about this so it was, it was fun you know being able to answer their questions um yeah I I actually I had a, a like a kind of a specific question um about thunderstorms but d did you collect the data by essentially having to mic up different parts of the detector or like how did you how did you go about actually collecting the data right so i was in charge so there's three of us there was one, i was in charge of the part of creating the feature extraction uh code and then the other two students worked on a location code to tell where the noise was uh, affecting most in the, detect the detector and then the other one was to actually detect where the noise was like coming from. Um, so um, what I had to do is since there was some, I was lucky enough that there were so many microphone channels already, I didn't have to do anything. I just had to get the data. But one of the, I think like the most fun parts of it was that I had to create a script to actually hear the, the data from the microphone. And I sat at a desk for a couple of hours and ran through each one each uh, segment that I wanted to look at and determine audibly if it was a thunderstorm or not. And of course we had like the dates when thunderstorms happened and when they didn't happen, but it was interesting to hear like what was going on in the detector without people knowing. Interesting. So, yeah. So when we get that, I would separate like it's not a thunderstorm versus it is a thunderstorm or thunderclap. And from then um, we ran, we just made it into um uh, an algorithm to test. So then we extracted the features using my code, which it was really, it was, it was nice because at one meeting we had, um, we had to give updates on our project at the Livingston site. And I was giving mine and, you know, I compared it because I use a system very similar to um, Shazam. I don't know if you know Shazam. So like you hold the button down and it like, listens to an audio music for like a couple seconds and it'll tell you what song it is so i did something very similar to that in my project and a scientist there was like man that's really interesting because i always thought of gravitational waves as music from like the universe so i was like oh yeah that's kind of funny um so cool. like, you got one saying like ah rihanna and you got the other one saying like <laughs> ah supermassive black holes violently colliding two million light years away <laughs> oh my god so ligo is just a giant shazam is that is that what you're telling me it's like a shazam for the universe right like oh that's a I think we have our title candidate <laughs> <laughs> the giant shazam yeah so that, that was really fun and then um yeah so i'm still working on that um and it's really, I don't know, it's nice. <laughs>
and like um you know not to dive too too deep into the technical stuff but i am really curious to understand more about this like what uh, are there like general principles that you went by when you were designing like what what uh, features you're looking for in a thunderstorm or did you notice something after listening to so many thunderstorms and, and looking at the data uh, what were some of the common things that you could kind of extract from thunderstorms and you would know, okay, thunderstorms possess this where other noise sources do not? Yeah, so we did have to filter it using, you know, their signal to noise ratio. We wanted it above a certain uh, value. Mm -hmm. And then we made sure, you know, they have to last longer than six seconds at least or so, like give, give or take. Um, and then from there, we also, I had to use, um, in the package I used, there was different features we could extract. Uh, I won't go into them because they're kind of weird, but um, we had to make sure we picked the right ones and the right, and make sure they worked. So um, I think I ended up using six originally to extract features or like uh, data points from the audio in the time series. And then now we only use like four because they they do around the same job and we don't have to do as much um yeah and and i guess it's just a lot of testing so like when we actually ran it and tested like oh this is a thunderstorm or not we would have to go back and listen to it and make sure it actually tested it right or not and like we ended up getting like a 98 percent um like correct response at least at least then I don't know how good it is now I think it got better but yeah I see that's awesome wow well it's funny because you said thunderstorm so I figured we can make this like a like a lightning round kind of <laughs> thing I I wanted to 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 bring it back so so I before the um yesterday I put um I, I let people know on social media that we were going to be talking about black holes. And so uh, we had a question, not a lot, but uh, my, my good friend Alex Samora asked a question, but I, I think before that, maybe we can take it even way back. You know, we've talked about uh, black holes and, uh, sorry, colliding black holes and colliding neutron stars, gravitational waves and LIGO, but can we, let's take it just, you know, briefly back to the basics and what is a black hole and how does that work? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm gonna be myself. I'm gonna be. Uh. <laughs> um, what 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 is a black hole? I mean, I don't I don't know how to explain it other than it's a massive object, <laughs> like that doesn't emit any light, but instead it actually pulls in all the light around it, and you know, in, envelopes everything around it because of its intense gravity. Um, so I know, like you we hadn't seen a black hole until recently when the event horizon telescope released their, their image of a black hole. And you just see this ring of light around a black circle. So like, that's, I think that's really cool because, you know, you have these predictions and like these artist renditions. And when you actually get the data, you actually saw that it was what you thought it was at least. Yeah. Um, and there, there are a, I think there's like a couple of ways that the black holes are formed. So you have like the dying stars. Um, if they're massive enough when they're collapsing uh, and it can't contain its its uh, mass or energy, it, it will collapse into itself and then it forms a black hole. Um, 
other than like a dwarf or a white dwarf. Um, um, and then you have the, the creation of newer black holes from the colliding black holes, uh, previous black holes colliding, you get newer black holes and so on. And then there's, um, you know, there's other, there's other ones we don't really know the origins of yet, just because we haven't gotten any data from them. So there, there's a couple of types of supermassive intermediate black holes, which we just kind of learned about recently, uh, a few theories on how those are created. And then we have, um, uh, what is what, what are the other ones? I, I'm like blanking right now on the names. Supermassive. Um, I said supermassive, intermediate. Primordial. Um, Primordial, and then those are the ones that are believed to be created at the origin, right? At the beginning of the universe. Oh, so, uh, those are essentially your primordials, but yeah. yeah. Um, the ones that are currently like a billion solar masses, and we're like, how did it get that big? We have no, like... Um, but I guess not all... De LIGO couldn't detect all of these classes of black holes, right? So, like, what would you need to detect, for instance, the gravitational waves from a supermassive black hole? Do you know what type of detector that would be? I mean, I'm not too sure on, like, how, what the range of, like, the hertz would be that we'd have to look at, but I, I would think we'd need, like, a space-based detector, maybe. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if the ones on Earth could catch those, just because they're so far away also, so I don't know how strong the signals would be. Um, yeah, I know for the, um, well, so LISA is going to be this year, laser interferometer space antenna, E-LISA. Mm -hmm. um, which will eventually be a, essentially it's LIGO in space and uh, it's a triangle instead of an L for re for physical reasons. And um, that would be able to detect, for instance, your, I think your, I, I think your intermediate mass black holes and definitely your white dwarf binary mergers, which you can't detect with ground-based. Um, but to detect a supermassive black hole, or uh, primordial uh, signals, not just black holes, but like your stochastic background, the, the first gravitational waves produced by the universe, you would need pulsar timing arrays, which are essentially galactic scale uh, detectors. But in principle, with primordial waves, you could see as far back in theory as when gravity split from all the other forces and behaved distinctive to them, your first decoupling, that's about 10 to the minus 21 seconds after the Big Bang. So light, you could only see 380,000 years after the Big Bang, that's when you hit your microwave background. To see beyond that, you have to see with gravitational waves. But you would need pulsar timing arrays and space-based detectors to see stuff like that. And gravitational waves could are basically the only window that we have to the time before the cosmic microwave background? Uh, yeah, because any, any information carried by photons, no matter what the wavelength is, is limited to your, back, your microwave backgrounds. Um, anytime before that light could not decouple from the matter, it, the matter was not uh, diffuse enough to allow photons to move around quickly so, uh, and far before being reabsorbed. So, but gravity has existed as gravity, as far as we know, for almost the whole entire thing. And so that's why I say in theory, you could, once you get to the sensitivity and the, the instrumentation that you have to do that, you could 
probe the gravitational environment of 10 to the minus 20 seconds after the Big Bang and see how gravity and quantum mechanics behave together. That's an actual experimental probe that you can eventually get to one day. So yes. Isn't that one of the, the big questions of science right now, trying to find a, is that the, the unified theory, the quantum mechanics and gravity? Well, if you want to, if you want to get kind of technical, you, your grand unified theories are any theory that includes electromagnetism, the weak force and the strong force. If you're including gravity, that's considered by definition, a theory of everything. So a TOE is including gravity. Um, and at this point, we're pretty confident at our, what's known as electro weak unification. So electromagnetism and the weak force can be explained very well in one coherent theory. And we do have a theory that includes the strong force, but it makes predictions that we have not seen yet. Gravity is just, gravity is just this odd child that's like, how do we, like, it's not even really a force. Uh, how do we, how do we fit, how do we fit it in? Yeah. So it, so it wasn't a theory of everything then, but it was, um, I guess that's just a, another gap in science right now, the, the unification of quantum mechanics and gravity or general relativity. Special? Yeah, yeah. Well, One of those. There's actually a couple, of, a couple of unifications that need to happen. There's explaining all the forces. And then there's also explaining quantum mechanics and gr because like those are actually two separate problems so like a, a unified force explaining that and then also essentially having a theory that has quantum mechanics and gr consistent in the same situation like quantum mechanics is perfectly fine to explain wherever quantum mechanics is needed and gr is perfectly fine to explain everywhere gr is needed but the two situations we know of where they both need to agree produces nonsensical answers. What happens inside of a black hole and what happened at the beginning of time. In both of those cases, when you ask the question, what are the conditions there? You get infinities. Like the theory spits back infinity in protest, which means that there's an incomplete, we, we lack a key piece of information, some underlying assumption or perspective is not fully there in order to allow us to make like we to take a step back from both of these theories and say, Oh, there's actually a bigger framework, a more simplified model that explains both of those together. So that's, that's an outstanding problem. Yes. So, so the myth, just to get all the parts go, to go back to the black hole conversation. So the, the, when you said the inside of a black hole, that's, that's the singularity, right? The, is a singularity the, the, the middle of a black hole? If Wait, there do you want to answer middle? these? Or do you, do you want me to keep yapping? Or do you... <laughs> <laughs> what's a sing what's a, what, is, what is the singularity? Like, what is a singularity? Like, what, what is... Or is that the same thing as the center of a black hole? Like, what, what do those things mean? <laughs> Some heavy, qu heavy questions. <laughs> Um, I mean, I consider it like the center of the black, of a black hole. Um, but it, I, I think it's also where like everything, I don't want to say disappears, but like disappears into at least. And, um, 
I would just call it death. (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining like a diagram. It's like black hole. And at the center, it's like death. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, a singularity is anywhere. I mean, you can get really complicated with it. You could think of it as simply as a point. um, But the point has unknown behavior or what I would call divergent behavior, behavior, meaning it, um, it, the solution explodes. And here's, here's an example of what I mean by that. Like, there's actually a singularity on Earth. There's essentially two. Um, and I know we've talked about this before. When you go to the top uh, of the Earth, the North Pole, and then you ask the question, what is your azimuthal angle? It doesn't matter because you're at one point, right? It's, it, it, it isn't until you move away from that, you're diverging away from a single point. But when you're at that point, you could assign any angle and it would still represent where you're standing. It's not until you leave that. So there, but that's a, that's a singularity, uh, an artifact of the coordinate system. And it turns out that there's the black holes have many singularities, but all of them are actually products of the way you're describing them mathematically. You can get rid of those as coordinate artifacts, but no matter what, there's one singularity that is not a coordinate artifact. It's a physical singularity. And that means basically the best explanation we have is uh, what happens when you're there, we don't know. Because the theory, both quantum mechanics says you have infinite energy and Quantum mechanics will say you have infinite energy there, or at least Planck scale energy if you put a limit on it, which we don't understand. Um, and general relativity says you have infinite curvature, which is what what does that even mean? So both theories give you a divergent wild answer that means nothing. And the same thing, by the way, happens at the beginning of time. The Big Bang, when you ask what happened at the Big Bang, we don't know. What happened Everything. right after? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a... All of it. I mean, that's what you're saying. No, if, if it's infinite energy, quantum mechanics is the, the, the realm of like possibilities, potential outcomes, whatever you want to call it. But that's basically saying like every possible thing. No, it goes in. T- it goes in tune with remember uh, we, our conversation with Moises a while back where we were like, where did the Big Bang happen? It happened everywhere because it was there. everything. There. It, was, it was the whole thing was a Big Bang. So, yeah, yeah, that's I still kind of wrap my head around that. But <laughs> nobody, nobody can. <laughs> yeah, I think inside a black hole, you will find Matthew McConaughey searching for his daughter. No, <laughs> either that or Yoshi's. I think that's where all the Yoshi's are. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a poetic in, uh, interpretation. Well, it's actually more mathematical, but it, it sounds poetic to me. It was told to me by Dr. Romano. He was like, "When you pass the event horizon." you can no longer think of the singularity as a place you're going. It becomes in your inevitable future. And that's because when you go from outside of the event horizon and you cross into it, your space and time coordinates interchange with each other. So your space becomes time, time becomes space. And that doesn't make any sense, but you have to think of it as you have a singularity in the center of the black hole. When you're outside of the black hole, you interpret the singularity as a position. And when you're in the black hole, that singularity becomes reinterpreted to you as an inevitable future. And it, like, it becomes all possible paths in your time curve end up in that singularity when you're inside the event horizon. It becomes your inevitable future. 
And that that's very hard to wrap your mind around, but that's another way to look at a singularity outside of a black hole versus inside of a black hole. They, it, it's different. So. So then what's the event horizon? The event horizon is defined as where that change in your coordinates occurs. It becomes, it's the boundary where no information can pass. So like a, a, an event horizon is a horizon of events. And I know that sounds like I'm just reflavoring the words, but it, it, it should offer a little intuition here. When you pass that horizon, people who were trying to check on you could no longer ever know what happens to you. It's impossible. And vice versa, by the way. So that event horizon is literally a horizon. Just like when you look at the Earth horizon, you don't know what's around the curve. The event horizon is where that curvature uh, exceeds the escape velocity of a photon. And since uh, nothing can travel faster than light, nothing could ever leave. No information can leave. That's a good way to put it. That with the Earth, the Earth's horizon. I think I've never heard it that way. It's a really good explanation. I love that answer. It's. <laughs> It's like I thought of answering, like, what's a gravitational wave? It's a wave of gravity. A gravity well, wave is from an <laughs> I was like, a gravity wave is from an earthquake. A I, I, wa <laughs> I was about to show the meme that actually, uh, <laughs> so, so we hear this in popular literature. Uh, I'm so glad Brina said this. I'm like ecstatic, to be honest. Like, I, I'm, I'm, cause I, like this, is, this is really frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating in the gravitational wave community gravitational waves are not the same as gravity waves those are separate things so so it's incorrect to say that black holes produce well they could produce gravity waves but what we detected was not gravity waves they're gravitational waves actually yes <laughs> so let me let me go ahead and ask the the question that i had brought up earlier i didn't have it sure. written down i don't know why i'm getting my notebook you want uh, me to read it so yeah sure if you, you don't have it in front of you. Um, so it's from what it's from Alex Zamora, right? Who is going to yes, be a future, future podcast episode uh, uh, guest. Yes, and definitely. So Alex asks, I'm, I'm definitely going to ask Frida this first. Uh, is, Since black holes bend light due to their immense gravity. And we also know that gravity affects objects with mass. Does that mean that light has some sort of mass like property in order it, for it to be affected by black holes. It's a good okay, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're right. Come uh, on. Since we know, like, light has two different ways it acts. So it can act as like a photon or a wave. I believe the photon version does not have mass. I think, right? I think that's you're right. You're you're no, you're correct. It does not have mass, but the wave version. So, like, a photon cannot carry energy but a wave can so a wave can carry some sort of energy like am i am i missing no, you i i know what you're saying i know exactly what you're saying i mean i don't know you if you want to take this i, I don't want to mess this up <laughs> it's such an important question okay, okay it is it is it's actually a great question this is what i didn't you know these types of things it's like you have to go into your GR special relativity knowledge and then come back out with a distilled version that makes sense still to explain. And that's not an easy task, but. Or it's like a black hole. Once you go in, there's nothing. <laughs> One or the other. Um, <laughs> but cue black hole jokes. Um, so, so 
So photons can carry energy. They carry a quanta of energy, right? So E equals H nu. And uh, the higher the frequency, so like blue photons versus red photons, like blue light versus red light, blue photons carry a little bit more energy than red just because they have a higher frequency. But even, but that's like kind of a quantum mechanical interpretation. If you look at this just from a, a GR perspective, um, the, the first part of the question is actually not exactly correct. And here I'll, I'll say why. Since black holes bend light due to immense gravity, black holes do not bend light. What they do is they distort space-time. Light travels, photons travel in straight lines and they travel in the shortest distance possible. So when an object with mass causes a distortion of space-time, a photon just responds by following that distorted path. To the photon, it still feels like it's traveling. So photons like to go to infinity. They're actually pretty much the only objects that like to travel to infinity, and they do it as quickly as they can because they have no mass. And in special relativity, we see that photons travel, um, they, they follow the shortest path known as a geodesic. In geodesic, you could think of as a straight line on a flat surface, but if you were to bend the surface and say, go from point A to point B, uh, there is a, there is multiple paths you can take along that curved surface, but one of them is the shortest and least energy intensive. And photons simply follow that principle. Gravity you shouldn't really think of it as a force. You should think of it as a distortion of geometry. The photon just responds to that distortion. It just, so like photons will skirt the black hole and keep on going. They might fall in and then they're never gonna come out. Well, okay, maybe they will, but, um, but basically a simple way to answer the question is, does light have some sort of mass-like property? It does in a sense, it has energy. And we do know that energy and mass are equivalent but we know that the photon has no rest mass. It only can move. And so if you look, E equals MC squared is actually a shortened version of the full equation. It's E equals MC squared squared plus P squared C squared, I believe. And since M is zero for a photon, E squared equals P squared C squared, take the square root of both sides, E equals PC. So a photon has an effective momentum moving at the speed of light, but it does not have a rest mass. So it has something analogous to mass, but it's not massive at all. Um, and it only responds to the distortion of space-time. So. so to us, it definitely looks bent, but you're saying Indeed. that it's, in reality, it's not bent. No, it, well, so, so you have to kind of think of what is it, like almost do the Einsteinian approach, what does a photon experience? And that's a very hard question, but... A photon. Is this, this, would it be like a, a good uh, comparison to say, like, if you stick a pencil inside a fish tank and you see the, like, you see the pencil split, like, it's obviously not really split, but the reflection makes it look like it is. Is that kind of? It's not like refraction. It, it, it's, it's not an apparent change. It's a change in your coordinate. This is why GR, like, even gravitational <laughs> waves saying gravitational waves are metric perturbations. What does that even mean? That means if I'm standing next to you, like if Brina and I are standing kind of like next to each other and a gravitational wave passes between us kind of like, like this, right? So we're facing each other and a gravitational wave passes between us. Her and I are gonna see, like in an exaggerated sense, her and I are gonna see each other get closer, farther, closer, farther, 
closer and farther. And you would say, are we actually getting closer to each other? Depends on what you mean by closer. Because it looks like we're getting closer to each other. But then you would ask the question, what would a ruler look like in between us? And the ruler will also change in size. Oh. So the, the, that, that distance looks like it changes, but the actual scale factor is preserved. This is exactly analogous to the expansion of the universe, by the way. Do we say the distances between objects are getting bigger? Yes, but that's not the same thing as saying the scale is changing. Those are different statements. So, because the ruler between galaxies is also getting bigger. So to ask the question, is it actually bending space-time? It is, but a photon is experiencing the shortest path still, no matter what type of curvature is involved. That's, that's the point here. It's not, the photon's not being affected by gravity directly. It's following the distortion that gravity causes. It's, it, and it's wild, like, without going into, like, and, you know, even... Even saying like what produces gravitational waves, right, is not easy to say because we say, oh, it's an asymmetrical mass distribution. But without going into too into tensor analysis and calculus, it's very hard to be precise about these things. So like that's I mean, that's the best I can do to to explain it. But the ruler analogy is very insightful, I think, to see that the ruler yeah. changes as well. That's that's very important. It is. It def yeah. That helped me understand in a way that I haven't before. That's cool. I saw, yeah, you had your mind blown face again. You're yeah, that was, yeah, <laughs> it, it did blow my mind. So then is it, is it right at all to say that the universe is not expanding? It's just the way that we're measuring it is what it is expanding. The measurement itself is what it's expanding. Is that right? It depends on what you're measuring, but the answer, the short answer is yes, it is expanding. Um, but you have to account for the fact that the scaling doesn't change. So like relative scale stays the same, but it is still right. Like I, I'm, I'm really trying to be careful because I don't like it when, when science is popularized at the expense of accuracy. And there's, there's always a trade-off, but I'm really trying to be careful here is that the relative scale does not change. So your, so your R, what we call R, big R, um, which is, uh, if you take a piece of graph paper, you could you can kind of look at it as like the cells are all getting bigger, but the ruler is also getting bigger. So like, what you're defining as an inch stays an inch, but if you were to look at it on an absolute scale, the inch is getting bigger. But to you, the inch is still the same, even though it's getting bigger in terms of an absolute scale. And it's very hard to talk about absolutes in GR because it's like. GR says that there's no absolute there's I mean the frame of reference situation like what's expanding relative to what is very hard to deal with when you talk about GR so is it kind of like the opposite of of inflation so weird to compare this to money but you know like compare it to like don't you inflation, inflation. <laughs> no no well maybe maybe <laughs> I don't know Maybe that, like, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head all around it and still ask a question. Um, so, you know, like with money, like you can say $5 in 1950 is not the same as $5 today. It's, it's much more, so $5 today is, it's still $5, but today it's more, no, it's less. It's worth less relatively because of inflation. So um, you could buy less with more or you buy less with, yeah. What you said. 
Jesus. Less um, is more. <laughs> so is that like the opposite of the expansion of the universe? It's, or measurements, it's, or I'm I'm mixing questions now. I don't even. No, know. no, no. It's it's hard to answer this without a beer or something. But basically, <laughs> I would say, I, I don't know, Brina. Maybe you could say something about this too. But I I would say it's similar only in the very loose sense that there's a a weight being attributed to a certain value that changes over time. So like you're, I would say it's more. I was gonna say it's more closely related to cosmic inflation than it is to. Because cosmic inflation is an expansion of space-time. Your scale factor is changing, caused by some other force, but it's that's closer than, like, economic... In, I mean, when you get down to it, economic inflation is um, is calculated as an integral under a, a supply and demand curve, I think. I could be wrong here from my Econ 100, but basically it's a it's kind of an arbitrary thing. It does tell you some stuff, but, like, it's not... It's hard to draw an analogy between the two. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was like, I didn't want to make that comparison, but because, um, yeah, money is, what is money? It's fake. We just made it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is going to be in the pause. Like, what is gravitational waves? To describe pi C. See this dollar. <laughs> yeah, what is money? <laughs> Cosmic money. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking something. For, this is not an official sponsor, but um, this is cosmic <laughs> money right here, right? Starbucks? Yes. Coffee so, uh, in general. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. But th- this is a good question because it is, it is like also the fact that black holes, I don't know, black holes are just so exciting because they're mysterious. Um, do you, Brina, have you heard of the no hair theorem of black holes? Yes, I don't. I, I'm not gonna talk about it. <laughs> Very briefly in VR, and um, I think I, like towards the very end, so I'm not like super knowledgeable on it. But if you want to go ahead, <laughs> I just wanted the reason why I was asking was because like we're all. I think we're really excited about talking about black holes here, and I, I always try to understand like why are they so exciting? Like what is it about them? And I think it's the fact that they produce the most extreme environment you can imagine they're in all of these crazy situations right merging black holes and gobbling up stars etc but at the same time um again i had uh, this explained to me very well um uh, actually again by dr romano he said that another way you could look at no hair theorem is that black holes are the simplest objects we know of in the universe a single black hole can be described by only three numbers and in reality only two because the third number is usually zero. Um, so if you can, how many, how, like how many things would it take to describe a human being? Not even just like an individual, like a human or like a rock. I mean, there's so many different it, rocks are even more complicated than, than we might think. Right. But a black hole is entirely all physical properties can be entirely specified from three numbers. And that to me is like, it's almost adds to the intimidation. Like they're these very simple objects. They're these primordial, simple geometrical objects that just cause such fascination and destruction. Like that, and everything will eventually enter one. That's the other thing is in the farthest history in the universe, everything is going to become black holes and photons. So yeah, back to the, Back to the dark stuff, right? Yeah. 
That's totally. the black hole being the darkest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and it's just, I mean, it's so cool that we can actually detect them. I know that LIGO, there's, um, there's this property of all gravitational wave detectors called um, the uh, horizon distance. And it's a very particular number that tells you in a very simplified sense how far you could see black holes. And it's defined as something like the distance to which you could see two certain mass black holes merge at a signal to noise of eight or higher, something like that. Like, I, I, I forget exactly. This is a Bruce Allen um, 90s, I think, work. I, I forget exactly. I'm probably butchering this a lot. But um, I, I believe that a LIGO plus, which is like the final culmination of LIGO, right, is its horizon distance will be able to hear every stellar black hole merger in the observable universe. So we're going to have a detector that could hear all merging black holes, at least in the stellar mass range, at one point, the entire universe, which is, to me, that's just mind-blowing. And you're working yeah. on it, Brina. Like, you're working on that machine that's doing this, and it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you, you, I mean, I think you mentioned recently that um, that you were potentially going to be part of the team that's working on Lisa. So how do you, how do you feel? I don't know if that's still a secret. No. Um, only to those mean, she's like, what's Lisa? No, <laughs> I can't talk about that. No, I mean, it's really cool because I just jumped into Lego like not even three or two years ago. And then like this next project's coming right at the peak of Lego. So it's fun to be at the beginning of a project now instead of at towards like the peak or the end of it. And I don't, I don't want to say end, but like, the yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, Lisa won't, collect data until like 2040 maybe 2030 not sure so it's gonna be a few years but um i don't know like the projects i'm looking towards i could either do you know simulations or data analysis or even like create hands-on um experiments for lisa so it's it's it's, it's cool <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask if there's anything you could say about it at this point, but that sounds like you have, so you have a couple of options, directions you can go at this point. Yeah, yeah, so I have to decide what I want to do soon, but I'm going to get to play with all of them, at least at some point, and see what I like. As long as you still give me, like, the heads up, like, yo, we detected the first, like, this or something, <laughs> like, send send me a little text at night. <laughs> I won't tweet about it. <laughs> we'll be the ones to leak it. <laughs> Stars, you heard it here first. No. Um, <laughs> and so Lisa, Lisa is going to be. Do you know when? Do you know when they're trying to launch it? Um, roughly. Um, I mean, I think they were aiming for like the twenty thirties, but I'm not. I'm not too sure. I don't know. Like the dates always change. So. Yeah. Yeah, and especially with um, uh, projects such as Lisa, like these big frontier, what I call frontier projects, like they've never been done before. And it's um, a very technically, I mean, LIGO itself is like a, a feat of engineering, right? And it's like, put that into space and 
separate them by like a what is it like a million kilometers and have them all <laughs> perfectly oriented with each other um uh, yeah to me it's just I, I don't that that is even harder for me to understand how that that would work uh than than on the ground yeah i i would just i would like to meet the people that um first present the ideas like that's awesome <laughs> like yeah we got ligo look at we got two lasers that are four kilometers long and then we got one guy like but what if it was in space <laughs> like <laughs> Like yeah. with the hub, like yeah, we got all these telescopes that could look at galaxies and and other worlds and all this stuff. And we got one guy like, well, what if there was a telescope in space? And now we got Hubble and I mean all the other space-based telescopes. And yeah, it's just is there? I feel like there was, I'm trying to ask a question there, but it, it, I just overcomplicated it. I know with I mean the, the whole point of space-based. Uh, telescopes and observatories are to, to get rid of all the distortion that happens uh, on earth right with I mean I know through optical you have the, the atmosphere and, and light pollution and things like that is there anything with with LISA and, and gravitational waves that is like a particular interest like yeah um, well I guess there's no birds and refrigerators in space so that might be an easy question to answer but is there anything more <laughs> interesting about that that he knows that, um, <laughs> There is a bird, I will let you know. Um, I don't know, I think, I guess being able to f find like the other gravitational wave events that like Richard mentioned that could give us more information on other black holes or other systems we might not know about yet um, is what is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, like you said, like I don't know how these people come up with these ideas. I know like one time I, I, I think it was a paper I had read but someone like um proposed a detector on the moon yep. and I, I, yeah. I think that wouldn't work out because like it, it was something with like yes it would be like a vacuum or i don't know what was wrong with it but it was it was kind of interesting to see like what people can come up with mm -hmm. yeah yeah actually i think victor shared that paper with me that's the first time i saw that paper you said that to me a while ago the gravitational wave observatory on the moon um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it sounds familiar, but I, I don't remember all the details. But yeah, I do remember reading about that. I know, I know when it comes to Lisa with the um, with the the noise. I mean, there's no, there are types of storms in space, but the, I think the big things are going to be your micrometeorites, uh, cosmic rays, and pretty much everything due to the sun. Like if you have a magnetic, you have external magnetic fields, or if the sun decides to have a coronal mass ejection, or solar particle bombardment which is which is a common occurrence anyway that these things are going to have to be um you're going to need to have uh your detectors and your storage especially your data storage to be protected by that environment because you know you have one burst of solar radiation and suddenly you've erased all of your data or you've thrown off your cert like you you fry all your circuits and good luck fixing that so yeah it's got to be extremely robust i mean you're you're essentially keeping a test mass in perfect equilibrium like the entire ship is supposed to be around that mass and that mass can like can only be jostled by a gravitational wave it can't be jostled by anything else so you need to that that that's why to me it's like lisa's even harder to imagine because like you're putting it out there into space where it's getting jostled around by so many different things and it can only be jostled by gravitational waves like 
kudos to the Lisa team, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be in, in Earth orbit? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I think it's trailing the Earth. So it will be in, uh, oh man, again, science creds here. Uh, oh, okay. I think, so here's the idea. And this, I have to explain something here is, you know how least, uh, LIGO are two L's, but they're oriented differently. So like, you know, so for the people oh. listening, let, let's, let's, let, I got to say this because like in, 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 in light, like with light, you know how you have polarized sunglasses, for instance, it's because light can essentially oscillate up and down or like this, right? So you have two different degrees of polarization. With gravitational waves, you also have polarization. You can have something that causes, like the, the analogy I use with Brina, to go in and out, up and down, or like this, 45 degree polarization. So LIGO is oriented differently because they're sensitive to different polarizations. LISA is designed like a triangle. So it's partially sensitive to polarizations, but as it sweeps around the sun, its orientation changes. And so it's going wow. to have, I believe, a time dependence on the sensitivity of polarization. So, so it's basically a single detector. It's like two, actually it's two LIGOs. And then it's put in orbit around the sun. And so the, I, I believe it's sharing the Earth's orbit or something like that. But, uh, or maybe it's a million kilometers away. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I just look at pixels on a tele, uh, from a telescope. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so you answered that very scientifically. And the basis for, for it's funny because the reason I asked that was because my follow-up question was going to be, can we see it from her? <laughs> Probably not. The, ba the the reason I asked that was because my, my curiosity was if, yeah, if you're going to be able to see Lisa from the Earth. Wouldn't that be so cool? You can see the International Space Station sometimes orbiting Earth. So I just wondered if you could see these lasers. I hope not. I mean, we're already astronomers are in trouble with like Starlink, for instance. So I think I think the less things we can see from the ground, the better at this point. But um, no, I don't think you'll be able to see it unless you like know where to point and maybe you ha you could see something like if it reflects some sunlight but i i, I doubt it so yeah you're just gonna see a big triangle falling into earth at one point <laughs> yeah you're like i don't think it's supposed to do that uh <laughs> i mean that would be so much cooler like yeah, yeah i understand there's a lot of astronomers that are not happy with, with starlink because you're taking data and then all of a sudden you just see all these streaks across the data but i mean with lisa it's like you can't get mad it's like oh look it's a laser in space cool <laughs> it's it's going to detect like uh like your white dwarf binaries for instance which are um, low frequency so they're orbiting slower um but you'll have there's a whole population of gravitational waves that we're not sensitive to with ligo which lisa will open up so like you know try to uh, like we're drawing analogy with an electromagnetic spectrum. Like it's all based on wavelength or frequency. Same with gravitational waves in an analogous way. But you need like your gamma ray detector is so different than your radio detector. And it does it in a different way, right? Same with gravitational waves. You have ground-based interferometers, which have a, a certain sensitivity and they can see your, your compact binaries, like your black holes and your neutron stars and your supernovae. And then you put it into space, you make the antenna bigger, and suddenly you can see white dwarf binaries. 
And then when you make your pulsars, like all the pulsars we know in the, in, in the galaxy and we time them, that's a galactic size uh, detector. Those can see extremely low frequency events like your supermassive black holes and your primordial gravitational wave signals from the early universe. Those are, but those take a long amount of integration. So for instance, like, like the uh, International Pulsar Timing Array or Nanograv will have data releases on the order of like 12 years. So they've been timing pulsars for a decade and then they can look at the timing residuals and see if there's a gravitational wave. It's not like the gravitational wave occurs from a quick binary coalescence and LIGO picks it up. Um, it's more like we have to wait and see the effects of the gravitational wave over a decade or more. So it's a longer project. Yeah. So, so Brina, um, I guess one last question. This is a, this is an important question is what are your future plans? And where, now that you've had all this experience with LIGO, you're about to graduate in May. Where is, where is the future of Brina going at this point? Um, Sleep. <laughs> no, I'm playing. Good answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I am planning on attending grad school. Um, I won't say where yet. I, I think Victor knows a little bit, maybe, <laughs> on the final decision. But, um, you know, I have a couple of options on when I, what I want to study and do, uh, where I want to do it. But I do, I am planning on continuing work with LIGO and then possibly Lisa and then who knows where that will go from there. Um, Nobel Prize. I, huh? Oh no. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I had told this to Victor a few days ago, like most of my life has been impromptu, I would say, or like it just happens and I go with the flow. So I, I don't really like to plan ahead. I just kind of, find opportunities and take them if I want to, which has been really fortunate, <laughs> but I don't You're know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, I, I mean, I hope that you continue riding the gravitational wave and, and coming across all of these, all, I know you will come across all these uh, opportunities because like I, I have this feeling that you're just getting warmed up. And uh, I'm excited to see where the trajectory takes you. It's scary. Yeah, you're definitely <laughs> going to gravitate towards a lot of opportunities in the uh, future. There's the, there it is. Uh, there it is. <laughs> uh, let's just cut that out. <laughs> no, shout, no, shout out kidding. to the gravity jokes. Yes, that's staying for the record. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we're, we're, we were really happy to have you. And this was, honestly, this was like an amazing conversation. Like this is exactly the textbook example of, of, a, of an episode of Receding Horizons that I've, that I've always dreamed of having is talking about black holes and gravity with people who appreciate it just as much as I do. So yeah. Yeah. That was great. Awesome. Well, with that, as usual, and for future recurring episodes to the ladies and gentlemen, children of Brownsville, Texas, surrounding Texas, the United States, Earth, uh, the solar system, and let's just include the Milky Way. These are Receding Horizons. Mm -hmm.